And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this morning I am uh, stepping into the proverbial minefield of uh, talking about divorce or preaching about divorce. I do so not because I want to. As a matter of fact, I, I prayed more than once, Lord, are you sure this is where uh, we end this family ministry series? Is this where? I do so realizing that there is not a single sermon which can answer every question on any topic, and that as I uh, delve into this one, that I do so uh, realizing that there are so many nuances that I won't be able to answer all the questions that may describe your own situation. And uh, that's not the point of a sermon anyway. The reality is uh, that there are blended families uh, in our church and in our uh, community and in our country and in the world. Uh, Approximately one-third of all weddings in America today form blended families or step-families. Forty-two percent of adults have a blended family relationship with a step-parent, a step or half sibling, or a stepchild. And of those who get divorced, 75% will remarry and 65% will bring children from a previous marriage to that new marriage. In light of that, I'll step into the minefield because Jesus did, and uh, where he goes, I ought to be willing to go in preaching. I will do so with grace and wisdom and complete dependence upon the Spirit and the Word. Uh, The Pharisees approach Jesus, and their intent is not to know. Their intent is to trap him. They, They want to trip him up. You see, he's coming into Jerusalem, which is their stomping grounds, he, he is making his descent or ascent uh, geographically north to south for the purpose of being crucified, for the purpose of being resurrected. He is coming there to save the world. They're not happy about it. Uh, they're furious about it. They don't like the things he said about them, and so they want to trap him 
And so they ask him questions regarding divorce. And we'll jump into those questions, two wrong questions. They said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Their question is a loaded one because it was a debated issue in his day. Uh, there were two major sects of uh, thought on this, major divisions among the Pharisees themselves. One school of thought said you only divorce in the case of adultery. That's the only time. The other school of thought was you can divorce, and I put in quotes, for any cause. The question here has that very specific uh, wording in it, is it lawful to divorce for any cause? So they're quoting a very specific uh, ruling by a group of Pharisees. Uh, the ones who allowed divorce for any cause allowed divorce for something as trivial. Now keep in mind that only men could initiate divorce in Jesus' day. Women could not. So they allowed divorce for something as trivial as the woman spoiling the man's dinner. That could end a lot of marriages. <clears throat> or the man finding another woman more appealing. So how would Jesus step into this minefield and come out unscathed? What is wrong with the Pharisees' question is that it begins from the fallout of marriage, divorce, not the sanctity of marriage itself. It's like taking your child to Chimney Rock and your child looking up at you and trying to pull away from your hand and saying or asking, how close can I get without falling off? That's not the right question. Or your daughter running into the kitchen as you're cooking and knowing the stove is hot and asking you which part of it she can touch and not get burnt. Asking the question is like a, a prenup agreement that you go into marriage thinking the worst could happen so you better do your best to protect your assets. It may surprise you to learn that divorce was easier in Jesus' day, especially for a man, than it is today. And the Pharisees were notorious at straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. They could, with precision, look at the, the uh, uh, speck in another's eye around the beam or the two-by-four in their own. The right answer to the wrong question is still the wrong answer. The right answer to the wrong question is still the wrong answer. You'll just get what you're looking for, not what you need to know. We'll look at his answer uh, in a moment, but they have a second question. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Their question, their second question says Moses commanded divorce. 
They're referencing Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And we just got to go there. And, and, and here's Moses' words. Moses is with uh, Israelites, and he's an old man, 120 years old at this point. They're about to cross the Jordan. Moses isn't going with them. He's old. And he is not allowed by God. And he gives three speeches, and this is in one of them. And he says in Deuteronomy 24, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, this woman is not having a good life. I mean, don't miss what's happened. Husband number one finds indecency, divorces her. Husband number two hates her. This is awful. And writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if he dies, like there's no hope for this woman, right? You read this, it just goes from bad to worse. And who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. Why would he want to? After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Why would Moses say these things? First of all, let's clear the air. Moses never commanded divorce here, did he? He just says if it happens. He never commanded it. The Pharisees' question is a blatant lie. There's no truth in the question, which proves it to be entrapment. And Moses evidently, through years of history with the Israelites, this is probably a real life example. And a woman uh, who was in the uh, position not of power is divorced and perhaps divorced again and husband number one wants to in a way own her and he's checking that. Nowhere, according to Leon Morris in his great commentary on the book of Matthew, uh, is, is, does Moses explicitly command divorce? Their question belies the truth. So what is the one right answer? Jesus seizes the moment and uses their question to give a theology of marriage that, that they or the disciples most likely have never heard. And maybe you haven't considered its ramifications either. Uh, Matthew 19, 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus, who was there when God the Father created and he was the spoken word of creation goes back there. They're going to quote Moses. He's going to quote Moses. And as he quotes Moses, he's going to go, Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, go all the way back to the creation itself. 
and say when God created, he created one man and one woman. What does that mean? It means that God designed the first marriage. Now, I want to say to you, I don't say it as a political statement, I'm just quoting Jesus in his theological assessment of marriage. Jesus is going to go all the way back to the created order. Again, Morris says that if God had wanted to, he could have created one man and many women and thereby repopulate the earth. He didn't do it. He created one man and one woman God himself invented marriage. It matters not what the Supreme Court, the state court, California for Pete's sake, it matters not what anybody anywhere says marriage is or isn't. God designed it, God created it, he defined it, and his definition will not be undone. Marriage is his doing. It is his work. And he created Adam and Eve. And then Jesus, developing his theology, says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. To leave one's parents then, and in some cases now, was a major thing. You didn't do it. Family ties were of great importance. But the creation ordinance put the marriage tie above all other relationships, even family relationships. When I do premarital counseling, and this afternoon, Jonathan Kayembe was playing the drums this morning, I'll do, I'll do his and Ashley's final session. They get married in October. We talk about this every single time. Triangulation. What is that? Well, if you look up a, a, a psychological definition, it is when a third party uh, inter intercedes or intervenes, but not in a good way, so we would call it interrupts a relationship and pits people against one another. In marriage counseling, in premarital counseling, we say every marriage is a triangle, and here is the husband, and here is the wife, and at the top of the triangle, this is a a class participation exercise, who's at the top of the triangle class? God every single time. And so I'll illustrate to them, if you both are moving toward God, you will never move apart from one another. If you both move toward God, you will never move apart from uh, one another. And there's no one else who is able to be at the top of that triangle. And that includes mom and dad. No, they can't be there. Why? Because if you're daddy's little girl... And, and he does something that isn't quite right, uh, my guess is he's going to take your side, not his. Uh, blood right, runs thicker than water, the old saying goes. It's hard for a dad or a mom to separate themselves from the years they've spent with you and give you counsel uh, on a problem in your marriage. I say, unless it's, don't run to your mom or to your dad. 
No, you should have other people. That's why life group is important. That's why fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ is of incredible importance. God will put people in your life, and those people will not separate. They'll point you toward him and help you to grow in him. But it's usually not mom or daddy, and it's definitely ever, never, ever looking across the table and going, you know, the, the biscuits my mom makes... Well, go eat them. <laughs> like if you're that concerned about her biscuits and, 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 and her apple butter homemade that she puts in and, you know, she milks the cow and churns the butter, go find her. Show up every morning for breakfast, eat those things and shut up. No, you don't do that. You definitely don't do that. You definitely don't. You know, if, I, if Wendy could have said a million times, I can't fix anything. Like, I can't work on anything. I, I learned in year one, and she, after year one, begged me never to do any plumbing again. <laughs> Ever. I don't even look at it now. And plumbers are, they cost a lot, but it's still better on my marriage to never touch it but she has never gone oh so and so could so and so and so and so why because we're, we're now becoming one and as you do that then there is no one who should be at the pinnacle of that triangle but god your child's relationship with his or her spouse matters more than his or her relationship with you. And the two shall become one flesh. That, that phrase is used uh, to, to denote God putting Adam to sleep and taking a rib out of Adam and making Eve. Um, all other creation was made with the spoken word Adam and Eve were formed and shaped, designed by God, made in his image. And here with the creation of Eve, we see God's design, don't we? She's made out of Adam so that, in a sense, not in the goofy, whatever sense, stupid songs these days say, but she completes him. And in a sense, he feels incomplete without her. A part of him made her. The best marriages are that. You may not discover that at the beginning, but the longer you're married, the longer you realize you can't imagine doing life without the other. And you you realize how you need one another. One man, one woman for life. That's Jesus' answer. And then he gives one command. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The word Jesus used, joined together, gives us great insight here. It is the image of gluing, which would be a pretty tough glue or welding. Glue or welding. We, uh, when Trent was younger, put a basketball goal in at our house. And it is made out of steel. It's, it's 
it's in there. It is, as you go down our drive on the left, and uh, Paul Snyder welded it, and I don't know what we were thinking, but we put enough concrete in there to pour a foundation for a tiny home. And uh, if you bump into it, uh, you can look at the back of my truck. It wins. <laughs> Every time. Uh, Wendy, uh, now that she bakes from home, um, people will pull in, and uh, they're, they're supposed to pull through, but sometimes they'll pull in, and when they do, she'll tell them, you know, there's a basketball goal. Don't hit the basketball goal. Every time. And she said she told this to this one young mom who was driving a nice Infinity Q45, big backup camera, big screen, all that stuff, and said, there's a basketball goal. And Wendy said, no sooner had I headed back in the house. She said, I turned around. She said, my husband's going to kill me. Right into it, she went. Well, three or four weeks later, here she comes back for more cinnamon rolls. <laughs> Car repaired. I said to her, what did your husband do? She said, I gave him a cinnamon roll and everything was fine. <laughs> That's what she said. That's what she said. My point is, basketball goal has multiple colors on it that we didn't put on it. Where people have hit it. Though we've warned them, why? Because it's so glued into the ground with cement and it's so welded together, it's staying. Your marriage ought to be able to take such hits. That, that's what God does. And if you've been married for any length of time, those hits are going to come, aren't they? Life isn't easy. It can be difficult. So is divorce wrong always? Is this what Jesus is implying? No. Jesus is saying that before one considers divorce, one must go back to the original created order and think of it and think of marriage in that way. He says, but because of the hardness of your heart, sin entered the garden and it made their hearts hard and it makes our hearts hard today. Um, the result of hardness of the heart results in, as Jesus is referencing here, adultery. It's hard to conceive that a couple would uh, stand at the altar and look at each other with that look in their eyes and 10 years later be glaring at one another from opposite sides of a courtroom, but it happens. Hearts become hard. James, in his letter, which is really a sermon, talked about this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, he says. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James is saying life is hard. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he doesn't tempt anyone but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
lured and enticed by his own desire. James gives this vivid image of temptation and sin. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James pictures sin like a baby being born. It begins with the desire. It results in the conception. And the conception, then the baby born is called sin. And when the baby grows up, sin's name changes to death. Sin always leads to death. Always does. So I ask you, husbands, is another woman turning your head? drawing you in, run, get out, call a godly friend, and run for your life. If you look at the whole of Scripture, when it refers to sexual sin, the word is flee youthful lust. Joseph in the Old Testament ran away from Potiphar's wife. Wives, are you seeing the pictures of a high school classmate on Facebook and thinking of how things used to be? Shut down your account. It isn't worth it. If you've already started down the path, get off that path today. Ben Franklin coined the phrase, if you lie down with dogs... You'll get up with fleas. If you sleep with the devil, you'll wake up with death every time. Single man, single woman, are you the third party? Are you hearing the sob stories from a frustrated husband or wife? Don't take that bait. You'll be the next sob story. But what if the awful occurs? What if your husband cheats? Your wife commits adultery? Uh, Verses 18 and 9, Jesus continues, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Here we learn that divorce is allowed but not prescribed. Divorce doesn't fix anything. It's not medicine that makes things better. So some words of counsel based on Jesus' words here. Number one, if you are divorced because your spouse was unfaithful, receive God's grace in place of shame you can feel over what someone else did. If you are divorced because your spouse was unfaithful, That's not on you. Number two, if you are right now committing adultery, repent. I offer a resource, which will be a link on our Facebook Live feed, on the heart of repentance. Thirdly, this may be hard for some of you to receive 
I say it with grace and based upon God's word. If you committed adultery and have walked away from your marriage, you cannot receive God's blessing and marry again. Jesus says, you subject your spouse to the adultery you committed. God will not bless unrepentant sin. In this article on blended families, they talk about some principles. The, the step family is birthed on loss. It's either a death, a divorce, or a breakup of some kind. Secondly, it takes the kids longer to grieve. Please hear me, moms and dads. Whether your blended family is a result of divorce or death, your kids move on at a slower rate than you do. You speed that up and they'll end up in an office somewhere trying to navigate the loss they never processed. Third, a step family should form slowly, the article says. Fourth, parenting, the parenting dynamic is radically different. Is your stepson your son? Do you get to speak to him as such? How will that be? That's hard. That isn't easy. Fifth, the marriage preparation is radically different. Different. I've married couples who have come from divorce. Every couple lugs luggage into the room. Those who've been married before bought the whole matching set. It all just comes in. Why? We've got to process marriage number one and divorce and pain and difficulty. Six, step families sometimes feel the need to hide in the church. May it not be so here. My guess, as a matter of fact, when I brought this up at staff meeting on Monday, I said, let's take a minute and you name all the blended families you know. It was like popcorn for a minute in that room as names emerged to people that we know. No need for you to hide. Here, Alan Michael, who leads our family ministry team, is convening his crew to look at strategy for family ministry. And one of the significant things they'll look at is blended family. So why? Why? Why do I counsel men and women every time to do everything you can to save your marriage? Why? I always do. Why? There's an Old Testament prophet 
that God called to do the unthinkable. His name is Hosea. And God told him to marry a woman who apparently, when they married, was a prostitute. But God told him to marry her. And the wording suggests that at the time of their marriage, she was a prostitute. And he did what God said, and they got married, and she cheated on him. After they had children. And in chapter 3, which is a very brief five-verse chapter of Hosea's work, he's talking, and here's what he says. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. Go get her back. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. I said in the early service, that's why you should never buy little Debbie raisin cakes. They're nasty and prohibited in Scripture. (laughs) Right here. Oatmeal cream pies every time. Verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a a, a lethic of barley. What does this mean? Hosea's wife, Gomer, ended up on the streets again and on the auction block. And most likely, she was naked And men showed up, and they bid on her. And Hosea stood among the men. The detail of the fact that he bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley means that he bought her with everything he had. took his silver and he took his barley and he bought her back with everything he had while she stood there naked in her desire for another man. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Why? For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Hosea was told to do that for two reasons. Gomer needed him. And Israel needed the Lord. And you sit here this morning as religious people, as saints who have been redeemed once for all 
one day Jesus showed up at the auction and you stood there naked all your sin laid bare before him and while your desire was for another God he bid the highest price his own life for yours Jesus died for you and said, if you'll be mine, I'll be yours. Come dwell, come live, come seek, and I'll be found by you. And any man or woman or boy and girl in the room, any teenager who knows Jesus, you were bought. with everything God had. And all God's people say,